welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hi, friends. Welcome to another Roundtable episode. This is where we analyze the latest gaming news across the entire industry. And today I'm joined by Abhimanyu Kumar, co-founder of Navic, Matt Dian, content contributor at Navic, and Dave Elton, who's going to do a small intro. Hi, Dave. Hi. Thank you for having me. So I'm Dave Elton. I'm president at Blue Line Studios. Uh, I've been in the games industry for just under 30 years. Uh, it's kind of hard to believe it's been that long, but it's been a fantastic journey. Uh, I've worked with companies large and small. Uh, I've had the you know good fortunes of working on uh, you know big franchises, small games, uh, everything in between. Uh, I've even dabbled in the world of theme park uh, theme ride creation as well. So it, I consider it a very fortunate career, and I've been able to see a lot. And hopefully, I can share you know some of what I've learned over the last little while. Dave, you have to say what theme park it was because this is amazing. Uh, okay, so there are two different theme parks. Um, the smaller one, uh, it was actually a Twilight IP where it was a VR no. ride. Twilight? Yeah. <gasps> Twilight, where you're on a, on a motorcycle, on a motion base. Um, that one uh, is at Lionsgate Entertainment World in uh, Zhuhai, China. Uh, and the one that was uh, a bit of a dream when I found out what it is that we were working on um, we did the AR software for Mario Kart for Nintendo World at Universal Studios. Um, so that was uh, that was fantastic. Uh, it was a fantastic experience working with both. I uh, can't say enough about you know Lionsgate or Universal. They're they're great teams. Yeah, it's so interesting if you're working in the video game industry. There's just a lot of these mediums that we don't usually talk about. Cool. Yeah. Well, alongside theme parks, today we're also going to be covering uh, Netmarble and Capcom's earnings. We're also going to look at game-only acquisitions that have been popping up more often. Supercell released a last-minute yearly letter, unfortunately just in time for us to create some thoughts on it. Uh, and also looking at Stream Hatches report with uh, a pulse on streaming. And first off, we have Mario, Supercell. Sure. Yeah, I can. I can go first. So, so this was actually going to be an update about uh, Squad Busters, uh, <laughs> the new game that uh, you know they dropped a couple of weeks back. But um, yeah, while I was doing the prep preparation for that today, uh, Ilka's you know famous annual letter uh, came out, uh, and basically had to you know replan the whole thing. <laughs> uh, but. But yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was it was a good read as as it all uh, like you know as it is every year, um, and and yeah, he did say like a lot of things, but I I will like maybe just start with saying that um, you know Ilka's letters have like 
increase and maybe this is just me feeling it but ilka's letters year on year they just increasingly feel more like public apology statements for you know like supercell not being like able to do what they do or what they have done uh for you know uh with clash of clans and clash royale and hey day and things like that and i don't know maybe it's just me but you know it always kind of feels like that and he kind of always outlines the problems that they're facing how they're thinking about their future and you know how they want to like change all these like just structural fundamental things about how they do things uh, in the future but you know it's one of those actions speaks louder than words kind of situations for me and um, and yeah still i mean that said uh, there was like a lot of interesting stuff in the letter um on the on the bad news side you know i mean revenue is down again 6% year on year uh, they they made um, what is it yeah 1.8 billion euros um and that was down 6% year on year ibitra was uh, down even more about 14% year on year about 632 million uh, euros various reasons for this uh, including you know the whole post covid hangover which basically is kind of affecting the entire industry um he did mention the whole att impact but you know um 90% of supercells installs are all, are all organic so you know there's not too much of that uh, impact then he also mentioned the whole turning off of you know russia and belarus um turning off games in these countries that affecting a lot of it and then just like increased investments in r&d and you know other studios and such so all of that kind of resulting in you know this greater ebitda drop um versus uh, revenue then um then like okay, so then the first half of the letter is all about like that whole you know apology kind of a uh, kind of a thinking but um but yeah he was kind of mentioning you know like just various challenges that supercell uh, kind of faces and how they're thinking about you know new games in the future um i guess some of the key highlights more future focus so first is supercell is basically going multi platform so i mean we kind of saw that coming with the whole north america studio and stuff um but yeah that was definitely interesting it, it is just hard to ignore games like you know genshin impact and marvel snap and just the general like cross platform or multi platform for a strategy that you know a lot of uh, a lot of the bigger games are kind of going for second highlight was you know just heavy heavy live ops based thinking so we've kind of start we already start started to see like the beginnings of that in supercell when they started expanding their teams you know for game, like their long standing games and wanted to kind of uh, move closer to like how live ops is usually done <laughs> or mostly done by the rest of the free to play space um and then the third highlight um and this actually this actually was a big portion of the letter and he kept bringing this point up again and again in different ways which is um hiring so super supercell has actually just become very very aggressive in hiring and you know like he mentioned things like just general team growth across the board um very specifically calling out that you know they are uh, or hybrid first you know in uh, in their uh, hiring and how they operate these days it's not no more like office first um and they're also um relaxing the whole 
you know, super a super cellian requires ten uh, plus years of experience in games, so you you don't need that <laughs> anymore. And honestly, like even you know, on my own uh, LinkedIn feed, I have actually started to see just more and more people joining Supercell. So hiring as a topic is becoming quite big for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that was, um, those are like some of the highlights of the letter. But I guess one thing, one thing I want to more talk about is, you know, um, just like bigger picture, like what does kind of, Supercell need to do to maybe uh, reverse their strategy uh, or reverse their, you know, fortunes uh, until now. Um, I guess my overall take is, you know, uh, Supercell really has like all of the pieces of the puzzle figured out. Um, you know, they can they can create like great meta system, meta game systems. They're, you know, balancing models that, you know, the rest of the industry kind of uh, tries to copy. Uh, live ops also they have like you know figured out to a good extent and they're expanding their teams to kind of do that and things like that but the one thing that I've always felt with all their more recent um, game launches is that just that secret sauce that they used to have about this core game experience something like something very innovative has kind of been lost Um, and Ilka did mention in that letter, you know, he's <laughs> uh, he said something like, um, we don't have all the answers, but if you do, let me know. And I felt, um, I was t- really trying to think hard, like, okay, like, wh- what are they not asking themselves when they kind of launch these new games? And um, the one question that uh, I felt is maybe missing from that letter is and this is a question that is answered yes for all their previous games is when they launch a new game are they kind of asking themselves whether this new game is a new way to play um you know it could be like even if they're building for an existing genre so i felt like the answer to this question was always yes in the past you know um heyday when i played that it felt like that clash of clans also felt like that. Clash Royale definitely felt like that. Um, Brawl Stars maybe less so, but still like, yes, enough, you know, on that question. But everything after that, you know, like um, Everdale and they did that, uh, the Tower Rush, the Tower Rush game or something. Uh, And then even the Squad Busters, you know, none of it like really like is a strong yes to this question of is it a new way to play um and yeah i have to like give a shout out to like jordan who's part of our consulting team he ca- he did this uh, recent podcast with jk on game makers and um they were discussing the shooters report and one of the reasons that they or uh, one of the reasons that jordan kind of said that extraction shooters is you know really kind of growing is because it's an entirely new way to play that same genre, uh, battle royale, and and yeah, I I don't know if Supercell is kind of asking themselves this question hard enough internally before they kind of put something out. Um, so yeah, I, anyway, I'll stop there. But <laughs> when you first said that it was a public apology, I was like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, it sounds like your take is that it's not a good thing. And well, I mean, I I don't know that that. Honestly, that's just like my personal take. But uh, the impact of it is, you know, we like we would then discuss the letter. And if Ilka is here, like listening to this, 
you know, maybe he has this question of, is it a new way to play? And maybe that's like, uh, you know, something he feeds back to the team. But, but yeah. Do you think that Supercell becoming a global operation, so expanding from from Finland, increasing the company's headcount, do you think that could have impacted the Supercell magic? Because they're scaling more. I wonder if the magic sauce just has to evolve with the scaling of the company. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I think one of the bigger reasons that uh, they're kind of expanding outside of the Helsinki's, of, Helsinki's office is also to just break out of the way things are done in Helsinki. You know, the shadow of uh, Clash of Clans and Clash Royale is bigger in Helsinki than it might be in China or in uh, in the North American studio and such. So I think that's probably one of the core reasons that they want to expand, find new people with new ideas um, and, you know, and like try to find that magic again. So... Um, but I do yeah. wonder if that's a little bit of it. Is it, you know, are they trying to make Supercell games actually to their detriment? In that, uh, you know, the, the the teams are organized in a super, you know, in a Supercell way. Uh, the process for how they develop games in the Supercell way. Do they end up creating a lot of similar games to what they had originally, because the structure is the same? Um, are they looking at you know, potentially breaking out of that structure by having you know, different ideas, different ways of looking at how you actually make games? Um, you know, I think it's it's a dilemma that a lot of companies have. Like, you know, how do I create a game that is true to my audience, but is something brand new? And like early days for Supercell, they were building up what does that mean to be a Supercell game? And now they have that definition of what a Supercell game is, and um, you know, do they need to work on redefining what that means today? Uh, I think yeah. one of the other one of the other bits he was talking about was, uh, you know, he reiterated a few times, making a hit game is hard, uh, which is one hundred percent true. One hundred percent agree with that. Um, Dave, with your experience in the industry, do you see this as a common pattern with companies that were successful in gaming and then over time they struggle to to reinvent themselves and do you, if yes, do you have examples of companies that did manage to succeed? Oh, that's a great question. Um, funny enough, one of the game, one of the companies we're going to be covering today, Capcom, I think is one of those cases where it was a company that has seen what its success has been in the past and then continues to, uh, you know, churn inside those those franchises. A company that has uh, succeeded. Um, Recently, I think that's that's really hard to actually find something for a number of reasons. One, you know, as as games become larger and, and more entrenched, like if we talk about the forever franchises, um, you kind of want to have something that is you know, very much a, a franchise, a label, something that's very easy for people to um, be able to understand. When you say there's a new Final Fantasy game coming out, people know what a Final Fantasy game is like or a Call of Duty or, um, you know, even a Supercell game, you know, the very defined characteristics to those which really help in that, in the marketing efforts. Um, so I think it's it's tough to come up with breakout games that kind of really, really redefine the mold for a company in part just because do they want to take that risk? Because, you know, trying to get something new in front of people 
uh, is really expensive and it's really hard to do. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a huge challenge and it's something I think that mobile game teams have a, a really hard time figuring out. Do they take the risk in in trying to redefine themselves or, or create something really new? And also, I'd also add like you know, I I don't think like Supercell has like a it doesn't have like a re like reinvention problem like if if they're thinking about this in the way that you know we need to like reinvent ourselves or or something i i i wouldn't like say that that's the right way to think about it it's just more about you know going back to their roots like <laughs> kind of what made them great and um that's where this question about you know like at least for me like is is it a new way to play is kind of rooted so and all their new yeah just their new games have all been like these incremental you know innovations um like that legend of soul guard game also which was basically like you know i forget what the name of it was but it was basically legend of soul guard um and even squad busters like it's basically taking you know um brawl stars uh, brawl stars gameplay and then adding in like this one roguelike round mechanic in it. Uh, maybe that's enough to kind of, you know, make it feel like uh, a new way to play. But I haven't played it. I'll have to like actually get my hands on it to, to kind of, you know, uh, feel that thing. But um, but yeah, at least uh, watching YouTube videos and stuff, it still feels a little bit more in the incremental innovation camp versus, you know, something bigger. Um, well, we'll we'll be rooting for Supercell. I find that Supercell is almost the 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 grand the grandfather of the industry, at least in my emotional connection with that company. It's I really hope that they succeed and keep bearing the flag of what what excellence looks like in the industry. So yeah, hopefully hopefully in the next year's letter will not be an apology letter; it'll be a success letter. <laughs> you, you mentioned Manu that the letter asked like if you know how to, if you have the answer like please let us know and I was just sort of thinking like you know a million gaming podcasts and consultancies and blogs lit up with that comment because everyone has a an opinion on super <laughs> has an self. opinion yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think another topic which is the next topic that everyone has an opinion of is Digi Daigaku so yeah Matt how did that Super Bowl ad go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope you all have opinions. I certainly have opinions. Um, so yeah, I'll just do a, like a really quick recap for those of you who are not really following Web3 Gaming. So high level, there's a company called Limit Break. It's run by Gabe Layden, who is formerly of Machine Zone. They have this project called Digi Daigaku, and it's been on the radar of everyone following Web3 games uh, for a while now because they spent $6.5 million to reserve a 30-second ad in the Super Bowl of American football for our non-American listeners. Um, and so this was really hyped up. Gabe was, you know, all over Twitter um, pumping this up. And um, I think it was a little bit of a letdown, in my opinion. Um, uh, so let me just explain what happened here. So they had a 30-second ad during the Super Bowl. It threw up a QR code where um, viewers could scan the QR code and then go try and mint one of these 10,000 free NFTs uh, that I guess are going to be a part of a game that has yet to be released. Um, and, you know, it 
somehow as it goes in web three. <laughs> yeah, as it goes. Yeah. Um, somehow this connects to the broader ecosystem of other NFTs that that Limit Break has put out in the past that, that are also free, by the way. Um, and where I think it was a bit of a letdown, uh, one is in the execution. So as you can imagine, 10,000 NFTs to a Super Bowl audience of millions, you know, they were gone in an instant. Um, this was exacerbated by the fact that Gabe himself tweeted out a link to Mint before the commercial actually went live. So, you know, if you're if you're active in Web3 gaming or in NFTs, you follow folks like him on Twitter very closely. And, you know, this is a this is a financial opportunity for a lot of folks as well, uh, as we'll discuss in a moment. So these uh, these NFTs minted out you know, insanely quickly. And uh, for those of you that, you know, may have tried and didn't get one, it redirected viewers straight to his Twitter page. Um, not to the game or to Limit Break's website, but to his page. Um, and we'll come back to that in a, in a moment as well. So again, no game to play, right? It's just to mint the NFTs. Um, so even if you were lucky enough to get in, uh, be one of the 10,000 to mint an NFT, you still had to have an Ethereum-ready wallet uh, in order to mint this NFT. And this is where I think this is there was a bit of a letdown in the sense that like the way that this was hyped up, and maybe I'm misinterpreting, but the way it was hyped up was it was going to onboard the masses to Web3 Gaming. It was going to expose a lot of people that knew nothing about crypto games to uh, you know the blockchain and to uh, NFTs and whatnot. And if you are you're like, hey, let me check this out, but then you get in, you're like, what's a wallet? And how does this work? Like that, that's, you know, it's an instant friction point. Now, is it fair to expect... Um, limit break to solve all of these problems by themselves? No, probably not. But you have to anticipate that there's going to be some amount of people that don't have a wallet, that don't understand how NFTs work. Um, so from that standpoint, and from the sort of the execution uh, mishaps, I think it's a bit of a letdown in the sense that it's it didn't necessarily adopt, uh, it didn't bring the masses to Web3 Gaming. However, I will say, that it's not necessarily a failure from Limit Break's perspective, right? Even though um, the ad redirected everyone to Gabe's Twitter and it feels like a really expensive engagement farming effort, like he is the mouthpiece for this company and for this game or set of games, whatever it is. And so from that perspective, I think it was very successful, right? He's, he's gotten a lot of attention for this project. Certainly he's raised awareness uh, among the general public, although it might be difficult to measure that. Um, if you want to look at like, Twitter followers as a proxy for that. You know, he had about 845,000 followers at the time the ad ran, and now he's well up over a million. Uh, when I checked yesterday, I'm sure it's higher now. Um, and as I said, he's essentially the mouthpiece for Limit Break. So it's, it's good exposure for them. Um, the drop minted out, and uh, at the time of writing, it was trading at a pretty healthy clip. It was uh, around a 0 0.2, 0 0.21 ETH floor price with uh, more than 1,200 ETH total volume traded. This is north of a million dollars US. Um, and only 4% of them are listed. So, you know, that indicates quite a few people are holding on and they're going to see, you know, how does how does this impact the game or how does this appreciate in value? Um, again, this is the financial speculation aspect of NFTs. You can argue whether that's good or bad for gaming generally. I think there's reasonable arguments to be made on both sides. Um, so I guess the question I have for the group is um, twofold. One, do you think it was successful? And two, however you'd like to de define success. And two, was it worth the six and a half million dollars that they spent for the 30 second ad plus whatever it cost to produce the, the spot itself? 
So I'll turn it over to you all. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> silence. <laughs> was it worth $6.5 million? Um, I think the one thing it, it did poorly, but did to some degree is get the name in front of a lot of people. Um, but, you know, looking at the commercial, it wasn't, I didn't think it did a fantastic job of branding the game or branding the company or, or anything like that. You know, the, the biggest part was that QR code sitting in the center and, and how many people, you know, watching the game are, you know, phone ready going, oh, I'm going to capture that QR code and interact <laughs> with it right away. Um, and I mean, honestly, if it was a case of they were just looking to get 10,000 people to mint, uh, he could have done that through his Twitter following. And oh, sure. I'm pretty sure that, you know, the vast majority of that of those 10,000 went just from the tweet before, before the commercial aired. Um, yeah. So do I think it was worth $6.5 million? Maybe at a stretch. <laughs> uh, I think it depends on what they really hoped as what their, their end goal was like. What was their, what was their target for this? And I think it was, you know, trying to get a broader reach, and maybe they succeeded at some level. Of that I guess for me, like the biggest miss in this whole thing was why the hell ten thousand? Like, if you're going to be showing this ad to, you know, uh, I guess like yeah, American football in America is very similar to uh, cricket in India. It's kind of like a religion, <laughs> I guess, a religious kind of sport. Um, I mean, why would you limit it to just 10,000? You know, I mean, even if you put a QR code over there and it's only, uh, you know, visible for 15 seconds and whatnot, um, the, that QR code was everywhere after, you know, that 15 second commercial. But once your 10,000, uh, you know, those NFTs are gone, then you can forget about onboarding the masses, you know, into this. So. Uh, that, Just for context, yeah. it's like the viewership of the Super Bowl is like 113 million uh, compared to yeah. 10,000. Yeah, I, I was actually thinking about like what the number could have been, and I was going to say one million. But if it's, <laughs> it should have actually been like a one million mint. But yeah, 131 million. Yeah, it should have been like a 100, 200, 250 million mint. You know, uh, that's that's like onboarding the masses, not 10k, and then you know. 1.1 million Twitter followers. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was probably the biggest miss in this whole thing. So yeah, I probably agree with Dave. Uh, not worth 6.5 million. And also just um, a lot of hopes for the broader Web3 gaming community, especially the developer community were riding on this thing, you know? Yeah. And, and that's like also, I think Gabe also just let down the developer community. I think the Web3 gaming community has more to learn with how Rihanna did the market marketing for her <laughs> business through the the concerts. Yeah. Rihanna uh, was great, by the way. <laughs> uh, one thing I wonder is, you know, in, in fairness to Limit Break, there was some news just the day before the Super Bowl that um, all cryptocurrency ads were being banned. And I wonder... You know, did they have to de-scope or change their approach in any way as a result of maybe late-breaking decisions from the Super Bowl? I, speculating here, to be clear, but I wonder if if that impacted their their plans at all. But I don't know. I don't think it was a complete failure on Limit Break's part, but I do think that the hype and the expectations maybe did not match the way that it was communicated. 
Yeah. We have to jump on to the next update so that we can start diving into the deep dives. Yeah. Any other thoughts um, here? Do, yeah. do better next time, Gib. <laughs> <laughs> um, fiery Manu, you also have the next update. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, look at me. Who am I talking to? I mean, Gabe is Gabe, right? But still, <laughs> he, he can do better with the 200 million that he got. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, I, I guess, yeah, last update. Uh, this is actually more of a curiosity uh, for me and something I've just kind of noticed, you know, happen more often, which are, which are these, like, game-only acquisitions. Um, probably the most recent news was, you know, original games um, acquiring Merchdom from bigger games. Um, you know, some other examples, more recent ones, Stillfront kind of acquiring Iron Throne, uh, Scopely acquiring Stumble Guys, um, and yeah, maybe even like Supercell kind of giving away Everdale, I would put in the same bucket <laughs> to some extent. Um, and yeah, th th there are like more examples like this and even some more like from, from the, from the past itself. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just a thing, uh. It's kind of like a style of uh, inorganic growth that's been popping up a little bit more uh, recently. And um, I was trying to think about, okay, like, you know, why this happens. Um, and I was able to come up with three reasons. But, you know, uh, I'll, I'll also like hand it over to Dave to kind of explain like the true why for why this happens. But my three, three reasons were one is, you know, it could potentially be, you know, the uh, the acquiring entity uh, just has like a completely new game vision for for that game so you know uh, it, it kind of becomes like a build versus buy decision for them and when it makes sense then they would just you know buy um the other is they kind of keep the game the same but they have like a completely new live ops vision for it so you know um either from a user acquisition perspective or or just like general you know more product focused live ops and then the third is, um, I wasn't able to come up with like a, you know, more formal name for this, but I'm just going to call it uh, inorganic growth without the extra baggage. <laughs> so, uh, of, you know, like uh, <laughs> the people and stuff. So, um, but yeah, these, these are like three reasons I was able to come up with. But yeah, I, I think Dave has like more expanded thoughts on this. So, but that give, yeah, give us the give us the truth, Dave. Why why is this happening <laughs> more often? <laughs> uh, how about I'll give you my uh, version okay. of the truth, or at least as as I've experienced it over the years. Um, yeah, teams acquire uh, IP uh, rather than companies uh, for a few different reasons. Uh, I think you've you've really touched on a couple of the the bigger ones, um, and I'll kind of cover it from both the publisher side as well as from the developer side. Uh, on the publisher side, um, there are a number of cases where even full companies have been built around taking games that have been successful in the past, uh, still have an active live operations to it, but think that they can do it um, either, as you said, you know, have a better or more clear or more up-to-date version of what that live ops plan could be. Or they look at it in terms of um, they have a very strong marketing uh, and user acquisition platform and can look at re-monetizing that particular title, um, be it adding in new types of uh, ad revenue into it, uh, as well as potentially looking at, are there ways they can make the, the live ops side of things cheaper? 
So if a game team has built up a game, you know, inside uh, you know the United States or Canada or someplace where the, the, the game team can be more expensive than uh, working with game teams in, in other areas of the world, um, they can look at, can we add new forms of monetization into this game? Can we reduce our live operations costs and end up with, uh, you know, a game with much better margins than what the original developer uh, was able to do? And there have been whole companies built around this sort of uh, concept. Um, you know, early days would be, uh, was it Rock U, I think it was? Uh, and then more recent, um, you know, some aspects of uh, some of the, the companies work on aggregating a lot of companies, um, you know, still front as an example. Another company would be Popreach, um, where they've taken games. Um, interestingly, for that particular company, they were part of the team that developed the Smurfs with Capcom many, many, many years ago and have now reacquired the Smurfs properties and are redoing the games. Um, so it, that's one of the main reasons on the publishing side, especially you know, if they think they can do a much better margins uh, with those particular games, they don't have to take the risk of trying to create something new. It's it's known, it's established, and they can see if they can do a better yeah, job. De Decca of, Games, uh, Decca Games is another example. They yep, built Deca their home. Yeah, uh, they've been acquired exactly. by Embracer Group, I think. Yeah, um, and then on the other side, on the developer side, why they sometimes look to actually sell their games. Um, you know, some companies don't want to keep on growing. Some companies like to be a particular size. And, uh, you know, if they've created a game that uh, has been around for a while and, you know, they've been working on the same game for three, five, seven years, they want to try something new. And so they may look to see if they can uh, extract, you know, some value out of the work they've done to that point, pass it on to somebody else and allow them to try something new. Um, it allows them to, uh, you know, refocus also as another potential example. Like part of the reason why some companies look at selling a particular set of games is because they do want to change, you know, what the focus of that particular uh, brand or company is. Um, and that's how, you know, some of the larger groups of sales have happened as well. Do you think another reason why we've seen companies, sorry, studios sell games is also due to the economic downturn? that if you need to bring in some some cash flow fairly quickly, you can sell a game? Yeah, absolutely. Like there will be a, an MG, a minimum guarantee component to it generally. Um, in some cases, rev share, and sometimes it's just outright purchase. But absolutely, there would be uh, certainly some, some inflow of revenue at that point. Maybe one last question on this. Like, do you, um, do you kind of see it as... It, will will it be an increasing trend? Uh, because yeah, yes, it is kind of happening like more often right now. But it's also like a you know, um, an M, like a redux M and A kind of a move. Um, yeah. So do would, do do you see it as kind of an increasing trend? Um, I think so. I think so. Like part of that is. Um, you know, just as the tools, as more common tool sets take place, becomes easier to take somebody's game and, and make it your own. If something's based off of Unity, it becomes you know very easy for you to transfer the the game code from one team to another because you're already working from a common code base. Um, in the past, there were a lot more you know company specific uh, code bases that would make it a lot more challenging to do that kind of transfer. Um, 
and just the fact that you know games are set up more so today, especially with uh, with the effects of COVID, everyone working remotely, everything is set up so that it's easy to be transported between different people around the world, and that sort of packaging, you know, it does make it a little bit easier to to make that uh, that change. And thirdly, you know, making new games is hard. So, you know, if you're able to breathe new life into something that, you know, already has a fan base, already has, you know, makes really people excited about coming in and playing that game every day, you know, then if you have that opportunity to, to do that, then I think a lot of people would jump on that. Exactly. If we look at the operational costs to try to develop uh, an- another hit game, if we look at the cost of acquiring a game that already has proven KPIs, I, I, I really agree with that, with that take, Dave. Okay, well, let's go on to the earnings season again. And we have Capcom first on the line. Yeah, Capcom earnings. So th- this was interesting for me, just having not really spent a lot of time looking into this company in the past. Um, the kind of headline uh, takeaway here, at least uh, as Capcom would state it, is that they are on track to have uh, 10 consecutive fiscal years of full year operating income growth. So certainly impressive consistency um, on their part. Um, they, For the quarter, they were down in a couple of areas. Their net sales were down, operating income were down year over year, uh, 9.6% and 5% respectively. Um, and they talked about pursuing strategic investment in uh, personnel. So aiming for long-term growth in that area. But um, the you know something that Dave alluded to earlier is that they've been really, um, really effective at um, harvesting profits from their existing IP, um, their sort of um, traditional franchises, particularly in this in this uh, recent quarter, Monster Hunter and Resident Evil uh, contributed to their sort of existing legacy IP um, sales, and um, that's that's my kind of big takeaway is that they have they have maintained this conservative but consistent growth by doubling and tripling down on the franchises that have worked for them historically. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, um, but eventually they're going to have to develop some new IP, I would think. Um, and so one thing I wanted to take a look at is what's coming down the pipeline. Um, now, they, they, they mentioned they're on track to achieve 10 consecutive fiscal years of full-year operating income growth. And I think a big contributor to that will be their next big release, which is Street Fighter VI. Um, and that's set to launch at the end of their um, Q4 of their fiscal year, which is June. But they also have a couple of, um, again, you know, brand extensions or you know remakes coming. Right, Resident Evil Four remake is coming in March. Um, they have a, a, a Mega Man game coming in April. Uh, Mega Man Battle Network Legacy Collection. I'm a big Mega Man fan from my childhood, so that will be cool. Um, but I don't know that it's necessarily moving the needle from like a financial perspective, at least not massively, let's say. Um, and then things get a little bit hazy, right? Um, they have announced a number of other titles for 23. Uh, there's a Monster Hunter mobile game coming in partnership with the Teamy, Teamy Group uh, to be announced sometime 2023. Um, that's a big move for them. I, I, you know, I did a quick check. They do have a bunch of mobile games, but I don't know that they have any massive breakout hits. Um, it's a lot of like Ace Attorney. They have, um, you know, Mega Man and uh, Street Fighter on mobile. 
but I, I don't know that these are really like, you know, long running live service games. Um, and then they have a couple of new IPs that they have announced previously, but very few details. So one is called Exo Primal, which is like a team based third person shooter with dinosaurs involved. And uh, there's another one called Pragmata, even fewer details on that one. That one was initially set to come out in 2021, was delayed to 2023. We haven't really seen much or heard much from this game. This is some sort of sci-fi action adventure game. Um, so little news on new projects. I think you know more to come, hopefully. we'll Maybe we'll hear something at E3 this year. Um, and then the other thing I'll note is that there's competition coming. So uh, EA is doing a game called Wild Hearts in partnership with uh, Koei Tecmo, which is going to be like a Monster Hunter competitor. Um, I might even classify Horizon, Horizon Zero Dawn, as a Monster Hunter type of competitor. Um, uh, We also have Silent Hill Revival coming to challenge them on the Resident Evil survival horror front. Uh, We just had Callisto Protocol come out, although that wasn't like terribly successful. Uh, Point being, some of their sort of traditional genres are seeing increased competition and they need to grow new, you know, uh, original IPs. Um, so for the group, you know, what do you make of these results? And, you know, are they, do you think we're like sugarcoating the results a little bit? 10 years consistent growth, you know, that's impressive, but are they hiding some, you know, uh, underlying strategic concerns by not talking about new IPs more? Um, these, for example, like uh, Exoprimal, Pragmata, not mentioned in the uh, presentation that I was looking at, the Q3 presentation that I was looking at. This was sort of speculation from previous announcements. So I don't know. Any concerns on, on your part? I, don't, I, I can understand if we look at the earnings that we were analyzing last week and also some earnings that were announced in, in between that episode and this episode, we are seeing... It beat us uh, go down, but that's because companies are deciding to invest more and in trying to build what the future is going to look like. Like, what are the next five, ten years of this of this company? And is Capcom shackles to wanting to portray that consistent growth quarter on quarter? Will they take the risk of the financials looking not as great because they want to do that for their investment? What What do you think, Matt? Uh, it certainly is a risk, right? Like it's it's not easy to develop new IP and and start new stuff. And you know they have a history, as we talked about, of doubling down on what works. And one thing I, I didn't mention, which is like a prime example of doubling down on historical trends, is that they actually saw growth in their physical arcade segment. Um, so you know, if you've ever been to Japan, they have yeah, these that, like arcades that are you know you know quite popular, yeah, right? That, that, um, yeah, that was ahead, like the, the thing uh, that I wanted to ask about. Like, what what is that arcade uh, revenue line? Because that was the one that kind of contributed most to that, uh, to their at least most recent quarter growth, right? <laughs> uh, I, I don't have the number in front of me, but um, the, the call-outs that they had were, one was um, a bounce back from COVID lows, uh, mm. seeing more people coming back into their arcades, and they actually opened up two new physical locations. Uh, uh, to new arcades. So they're growing that business, um, which is really interesting, I think. Um, and not the norm across the industry, right? There's not a whole lot of like physical arcade location-based gaming, you know, growing uh, worldwide uh, from what I can tell. Yeah. And Japan definitely has seen a contraction as well there. Uh, I know Sega's closed down a number of their right. locations. So 
it may be a case of Capcom seeing, you know, a, a bit of an opening. I think it'll continue to be a a soft market for the games industry as a whole in Japan. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it, they they may see a bit of a bit of an opening. I do think that a large percentage of the growth just is the fact that you know, COVID has subsided some, and a lot of the restrictions have uh, have come off, and people are able to go back. Um, so I certainly don't anticipate that same level of growth showing right. up next year. Well, I'm going to Japan very soon. I'll do some primary research in this, this area and let you know. <laughs> are you, I'm going to Japan in, in August. When are you going? I'm going in like three weeks. Ah, well, enjoy. That sounds amazing. Likewise. Love, yeah. love Japan. Let me know what you think of the Capcom arcades when you go. <laughs> well, let, yeah, let, let us know when you're back. I'll, t- I'll tell you Get what some boots on the ground. Play some pachinko. Maybe, maybe check Novik Pro for the updates on this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any other takes on uh, Capcom, Matt? Or should we move on to Netmarble? Uh, not unless the rest of the group has any thoughts. Um, you know, my... My general take is like, uh, you know, because we haven't heard much from Pragmata, Exoprimal, I'm a little bit skeptical as to what's happening there. You know, we've seen a lot of delays in the COVID era, games getting pushed back, games getting canceled. Um, and, you know, they've they've um, signed this partnership to work with Teamy Group for the Monster Hunter Mobile. Um, you know, Tencent, obviously, incredible track record uh, of developing mobile games, but um, it's not always an easy working relationship. Um between Chinese companies and companies from other countries. Maybe it's easier for Japan and China than it is like US and China. I don't know. Um, But all I'm saying is it's not a sure guarantee, right? We don't know. Yeah, I do think, um, I mean, one way to look at it for a lot of their remakes, uh, there's been a fair amount of turnover in the gaming population or a lot of additions to the gaming population since those games, you know, originally came out. Uh, and, you know, Resident Evil certainly looks a lot better, uh, you know, on a PlayStation 4 or 5 than it did on the original PlayStation. Um, so I think, you know, from that aspect, they're able to still bring in new, you know, new players to to their franchises, as well as having those nostalgic looks at, uh, at games that, uh, you know, people such as myself played when we were younger and, you know, now being able to go back and, and re-experience them, especially, uh, you know, looking a lot better than you know the, the 50 polygons per creature on the on the PlayStation <laughs> 1. Um I do think at some point they will need to make that shift though to adding in new IP. Um I think Monster Hunter still has uh, definitely some room to grow in terms of continuing to expand on a number of different platforms. Um but at some point I think they will longer term need to get to uh, to some new IP. The game that I'm definitely excited about is um, the new Street Fighter. That that's like the that's like the Street Fighter uh, open world Street Fighter experience, mm-hmm. right? And you can actually right. be the character and things. So mm-hmm. that could actually have like some pretty heavy live ops potential and things. So if and Anil if... were here, he would be extremely hyped again about uh-huh. Street Fighter. <laughs> <laughs> and if Dead Space's remake, the success is anything to to give confidence to Capcom about Resident Evil's remake. Hopefully they'll be able to also see that success. And we'll go to Netmarble next. Dave, it's your topic. All right. Uh, Netmarble. Okay, so uh, we're going to see some trends that 
have been seen by a lot of other companies <laughs> uh, in, in NetMarvel's results. So um, overall, they're actually able to grow their revenue year over year, uh, but they saw a loss for the year overall. And this unfortunately continued a bit of a trend from the previous year. So in 2021, uh, they were profitable, but they were down 43% from 2020. And then this year, they've transitioned into uh, a loss for the overall year. Um, they certainly look to be uh, trying to control some of their spending right now. Uh, if you look at their Q4 EBITDA, uh, it's at you know 91% growth quarter over quarter. Um, but you know they still are transitioning year over year uh, in a loss in that area as well. Um, if you look at where, just to, so people have a context in terms of where their sales are, uh, you know, they're a Korean-based company, but uh, about 15% of their sales occurs in Korea, 85% worldwide. Uh, and their top uh, grossing game, at least in terms of uh, looking at just from IEP, continues to be uh, Contest of Champions. Um, RPG is a category, so through the success of continued uh, uh, live operations with Contest of Champions uh, and seven daily uh, seven deadly spins, uh, has meant that the, the their RPG uh, category has grown for them. Um, now, for me, it was really interesting because you know most recently I'm familiar with you know uh, Contest of Champions and that, but when I looked at what you know the next big games for them. They continue to be actually their slots category. So, uh, the, if you look at from a revenue perspective, you know, Contest of Champions number one, but then they have like three slots games that continue to do really well for them. Uh, and then suddenly Denny Sins comes in after that. Um, this over the last year, they, they introduced a number of games. And this, uh, you know, we were talking about do you stick with something that's known? Do you try something new? Um, Netmarble tried a number of different genres. Um, so, you know, taking a little bit of difference from, you know, Contest of Champions and their slots titles, they had, you know, MOBA in there, Battler in there, uh, some casual titles as well. Um, now, unfortunately for them, uh, and this is something the CEO called out, uh, they were hit by um, some delays in some of the games they wanted to release, as well as the, the revenue coming in from those new games wasn't quite to the level that they were hoping. Uh, another big contrast for me in terms of, you know, what last year's press announcement looked like versus what this year's press announcements looked like. Last year, there was a big emphasis, same with, I think, a, a lot of companies on uh, introducing new business strat uh, strategies around blockchain, around metaverse. And there certainly is not that focus uh, right now with that um, with the, the most recent announcement. Uh, Netmarble is still, either through themselves or through their subsidiary companies, still working on NFT titles and still working that way. But they haven't you know, leveled up their, uh, their um, uh, marketing in that regard. So I think they're taking a step back, seeing how everything kind of plays out in that regard, and then we'll probably look to continue. I don't see them abandoning blockchain or abandoning NFTs, but... I think they're going to take a step back a little bit and uh, focus at least more publicly at this point. <clears throat> pardon me on their uh, on their you know their top line titles right now. 
We didn't discuss Square Enix's earnings, but from all of the companies that originally talked about going into blockchain gaming, they're definitely the ones still holding the torch as something they they want to deeply pursue. And Dave, what what about the earnings? Like, what picture of the future did it paint? Because with Capcom, we're talking about there's a risk that they're not investing enough in in new IPs. What well, what's your take in terms of Net Marble's future thinking? I really wonder if this year actually pushes them a little bit more towards the let's play it a little bit more safe. Um, and uh, you know they they called out as part of their release that um, you know the the games that they put out didn't see the revenue that they wanted to, uh, but also called out that the games that they had in live ops did see increases uh, in revenue. Um, so I. I actually do expect to see that uh, Netmarble probably pulls back a little bit from uh, new IP or, or trying to get as you know as broad as they possibly can to finding things that allow them to get that message out. You know, if they're doing a new game, potentially a license, another licensed property for them, so they are able to get uh, that sort of built-in population ready to come play, um, or focus a little bit more on on the live operations for the things that they know work. Yeah, I, th- I think that the whole, um, if they do decide to like play it safe, you know, going forward, um, I feel like that's probably like the biggest risk <laughs> to, to the company. Uh, because at least like lo- looking at their, you know, just kind of going through their um, their latest earnings report, the one like more fundamental issue I saw was just the structure of their game the active games portfolio and it's a very old portfolio <laughs> you know it's i mean like like you mentioned dave you know like marvel contest of champions that's like number 1 then they have three slots games uh, coming from that spinex uh, acquisition as like 2 3 and 4 then there's um, seven deadly sins grand cross okay that's maybe a little bit more recent uh, nino kuni crossworld also a little bit more recent but then after that, it's all, you know, old games. And so, yeah, one, old portfolio. And two, one big risk is this entire portfolio uh, is heavily uh, UA dependent. You know, if you want to be, I mean, it requires like some pretty like uh, heavy targeting to kind of find uh, those new people. <clears throat> the Seven Deadly Sins uh, launch, um I mean, okay, so Marvel Contest of Champions has the Marvel IP. Marvel Future Fight, it's, you know, maybe at position 10 or 11, also has the Marvel IP. Seven Deadly Sins has an IP, but maybe not, like, as global as Marvel. Um, so, but everything else, you know, is also, like, kind of lacking uh, that IP portion of it. So, I was I was just kind of, like, trying to think to myself, like, yeah, what what do they really need to do? Uh, because this is basically a company that's been stagnating on revenues for the longest time, and they're just kind of you know just kind of keeping things moving along with their live ops games. <laughs> and you know, okay, the money's coming in from these live ops games. We'll make some incremental improvements, and then you know, um, and you know, basically yeah, stay alive. Um, but I mean, if they really want to see growth. I I think it's basically rooted in those new games. Like, you know, what, what are the new games that are going to be coming out and what's going to, like, you know, uh, move Marvel or basically take the position of Marvel Contest of Champions as kind of like the number one revenue generator. So, 
Yeah. I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate on companies should be investing on building new IPs because the patterns that we've been seeing in the last couple earnings uh, seasons is that with a more limited ability to purchase consumers, they're choosing their favorite IPs, the strongest IPs. And if you're just a good game, you're likely to just not achieve the targets that you had in initially set. And so I think we're all in alignment. Yes, you should be building new games to rejuvenate your portfolio. But is it the best time to be trying to reinvent the wheel with new IPs? We look at Supercell and Supercell is trying to build a new game with the Supercell IP. And we see this also across other, other studios. So do you think that there's a right answer? I mean, I guess the way I see it is that if, uh, I mean, Netmarble is a public company and, you know, People want to see growth, <laughs> not not like, you know, year on year stagnation. And well, that growth, growth and IP um, are different, though, right? Like you can you can have organic growth if you put an IP on a, a new game. Um, so uh, to Maria's point, like it is risky to develop new IP that we don't know necessarily resonates with an audience. But if you have a new take on Marvel or Seven Deadly Sins or whatever, um, you can get organic growth through leveraging an IP. I mean, maybe Dave can speak to that a little bit more. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I yeah. guess I'm yeah, I'm not trying to say like um, it has to be a new IP. I'm just saying like new games. You can slap on like an existing IP to it. But um, like, yeah, if you're if you're going to just like rely on the existing portfolio and, you know, which is a pretty old one, um, then there's, yeah, I'm, I don't see like a path to growth with that kind of approach. But um Looking at their new game pipeline, I didn't see any kind of like big existing IP also kind of slapped onto those, right? So they're all more new IPs, I think. Yeah. Maybe except A3, um, which is there. And I think that's going to be part of their challenge is that, you know, from a cost perspective of developing the game itself, it's the same if it's a, a you know, a brand new IP or an existing IP. And I think, you know, where they've seen some level of success is where they've been able to have that IP attached on top of it to help break through the noise. Um, you know, and I do think that that's probably where they'll they'll look to go in that they can reduce the number of new games that they've got coming out, uh, but potentially focus it more on something that is familiar. Um, so, I mean, to your point, Maria, I, um, you know, new product, they, they did see growth. They saw growth in revenue where they had their challenges is the, uh, how much they were spending <laughs> was, a, was a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if they, you know, one way to look at it is if they reduce the number of new titles, have something that's a little bit more focused in terms of where they're able to transfer some of their audience, existing audience and see, you know, can they transfer Marvel Contest of Champions into uh, another game, um, you know, as, as a possibility. Um, but yeah, I, I think they've got a lot of new games that they're trying to figure out how to get to the public's uh, to public's notice, and that's it's a big challenge right now. And then I think we'll just jump into our last topic today, which is a review of Stream Hatch's report. So, Manu, what what can we learn from it? Yep. So. Um... Yeah, for for the uh, uninitiated, so Stream Hatchet is um, 
uh, streaming analytics uh, focused company and they they usually come out with these you know annual reports um about what's happening in the entire streaming market but you know that's mostly gaming um it's always packed with a lot of great information and lots of good numbers we'll probably put the link in the show notes and people can check it out but just to kind of keep it quick um there were kind of like five key themes or key takeaways for me at least from this entire report um probably the first one so streaming as a whole is kind of facing this post covid slump so you know um the uh, the yearly um the yearly hour uh, the yearly hours watched uh, were basically down about uh, 13.5% second uh, big takeaway was twitch still dominates i think it has about like 85% of the market and facebook gaming is dead <laughs> so that, that i mean that's that's kind of also expected because facebook or meta uh kind of said they're kind of you know shutting things down with this whole facebook gaming division um <clears throat> third third big uh, takeaway for me was you know um in terms of the games that are dominating on uh, streaming itself um a lot of shooters a lot of action adventure games and you know lots of mobas um number 4 um i was definitely uh you know just pleasant like it was pleasant to see that the there's a rise of like female streamers um and you know just more of that diversity kind of increasing uh in in the streaming space uh but um <clears throat> one thing that was also interesting to note is that there was also a rise of just personalities um as streamers uh, in in um, across like you know the different channels so and what i mean by personalities is um people who just have like a, a very um um a sticky but like very individual feel to themselves they don't need to be mass market in terms of like how they kind of approach their content and niches are um equally strong as like the mass market channels <laughs> um i i'll come back to that that point a little bit later um but yeah that so that would kind of be like the fourth and the fifth is um if you are a brand and you want to like you know uh, do good in the uh, or like kind of make the most of uh, streaming as a growth uh, strategy then focus on long term campaigns one of the biggest uh, and most popular brands um that have seen that has seen like uh, great growth uh, through kind of investing in uh, streamers is not vpn apparently so that that was uh, definitely interesting to see uh, and if you're uh, a game uh, then don't forget to do your twitch drops um, because every time uh, there's been a twitch drop for uh, you know these different games there's been just triple digit uh, percentage growth for you know things like hours watched and things like that so um so yeah these these are kind of like the five like more, like bigger you know uh, takeaways uh, for me from this report um you can check out like the whole report to like you know get deeper into the numbers and thing but um yeah in terms of like developer takeaways i guess i had like one key point over here um and it goes back to that whole personalities uh, thing i was talking about um basically uh, i guess my my big point over here is that just niches are niches are becoming as important as like you know the mass market uh, channels or you know content creators and um if you look at um so youtube 
gaming or YouTube more broadly also kind of does this like culture, YouTube culture trends report at the end of every year. And one one of the things that they called out, they did the survey. Uh, and one of the things that called out was um, 65% of, you know, the Gen Z population um, just want like personally, personally relevant content versus mass market content. Um, and they actually prefer to... Um, they prefer to identify with content that nobody is talking about. So just like this feeling of, you know, um, like feeling like just an individual who has a different and a very unique way of kind of, uh, you know, operating or kind of living in the world, I guess. Um, so kind of rooted in that, that's why I felt like, you know, these niches are as important as, uh, you know, the mass market thing. And I think the way that developers could, think about it is that they should just not shy away from even if you don't have like the biggest budgets for you know an influencer growth strategy i don't think developers should really shy away from just approaching a bunch of like smaller content creators who have very very like engaged audiences that also may be relevant for that uh, for the game they're building and you have seen like games like you know um, stumble guys is probably the most recent example that kind of made uh, or had a lot of success uh, thinking like that. Um, Among Us, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe a little bit of it, even though it was more of, you know, someone kind of found the game and kind of blew it up. But still, like, Among Us has kind of continued uh, its streak over time. And um, there are still, like, the niche influencers still, like, you know, playing it and kind of keeping it alive. Um, and yeah, there, there are, like, more examples. But um I guess, yeah, that would be like one of my key developer takeaways to just not shy away from, um, you know, going for like the smaller influencers, even if you don't have, you know, the biggest budget uh, for this. But yeah, curious to hear what you guys think. I, I read the the documentation and the highlights of, of the report. I think something, a question that it left unanswered in my perspective was, yes, Twitch continues to dominate. It may be that I'm an elder millennial, but if I tried to use Twitch, I don't understand what's going on. There's just so much information overload and user experience. So yeah, my unanswered question is, will the current platform, streaming platforms, be left behind if they don't start innovating and changing what the streamer experience and content creator relationship will be in the next five, 10 years? Because I don't, see a whole lot of innovation happening but again i'm not a big streamer streaming consumer yeah i think um again like uh, going back to that youtube trends report um yeah maybe a way to say it is that like content is actually just becoming cheaper and cheaper over time but where the real value lies at least from like a platform perspective like a twitch or you know a youtube gaming is how uh, how they're able to connect uh, viewers to the right content um, and maybe that's like you know a portion of that evolution or innovation that you're also talking about apart from you know fixing UX issues to make it easy to like onboard people uh, I mean thankfully there's no like QR code pointing to Gabe's Twitter over here but <laughs> 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 but, uh, but, um, but yeah uh, I think I think yeah the real value with the with the platforms would be like figuring out that you know their discovery algorithms uh, so that they're basically like you know um, able to like connect the right people with the right content uh, no matter like if it's mass market or just 
generally niche. That's an interesting point about connecting people to content. And I wonder if we'll see someone like TikTok, ByteDance get into this space um, because that's their whole thing, right? Is personalization algorithms. Um, you know, your point about platforms is really interesting, Maria, because uh, if you think about it, Twitch, YouTube, even Facebook gaming, these are like mega tech corporations, right? It, you know, if you wanted to start up a competitor, it would not be easy, right? You're taking on these gigantic companies. And from a, a content creator perspective, um, what choice do you have but to go to Twitch where most of, or YouTube, I guess, where most of the audience is, um, and you just kind of have to live with whatever um, royalty splits or um, functionality that they have desi- decided to you know, give to the creators. I don't think they have a lot of options outside of doing their own thing or, you know, blazing a new trail. Um, so maybe we'll see something, you know, uh, out of the Web3 space eventually, but uh, I'm sure there are companies working on that. But um, yeah, I mean, their creators are beholden to the platforms, uh, at least when it comes to live streaming at the moment. And Twitch has like now increased its take rate from like those premium creators. Right. So hopefully they reinvest it into discovery algorithms <laughs> more more loot what twitch drop features yep <laughs> <laughs> okay well we'll wrap up today's episode here um dave matt money thank you so much for joining today and you can always find us next week so thank you for tuning in If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.